0: Another report from Saturn, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Linda Spilker once again throws her hat into the ring, or rings. The deputy project scientist for the Cassini mission has another of her semi-regular updates for us. Bill Nye, the science guy, is back. He reports from Cornell, his alma mater, where the annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society's Division for Planetary Science just finished. Emily Lakdawalla will continue her Q&A on the storms of Jupiter and Earth, and Bruce Betts will join us for another What's Up examination of the night sky. We'll also give you a preview of our sixth anniversary contest coming up in just a week. Stand back, everyone. We've got hypergolic space headlines coming your way. By the time you hear this, NASA should have announced its reformulated plans for fixing the Hubble Space Telescope. The shuttle repair mission was put on hold when a critical computer on the venerable instrument failed. The space agency is expected to try to switch operations to a backup system this week. Emily Lakdawalla reports in her blog on NASA's decision to stick with a 2009 launch of the Mars Science Laboratory. The big and very sophisticated rover has run into its share of development problems, including cost overruns and redesigns of its motors and actuators. Emily does her usual great job of telling the story at planetary.org. The International Space Station's Expedition 18 crew has rocketed into Earth orbit aboard a Soyuz capsule. The astronaut and cosmonaut are joined by American civilian Richard Garriott the latest person to pay the Russian Federal Space Agency for a nine-day sojourn on the ISS. I'll be right back with Linda Spilker. Here's
1: Bill. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here, vice president of the Planetary Society. Today I'm speaking to you from the campus of Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Now, Cornell, of course, is where Carl Sagan, one of the founders of the Planetary Society, was a professor, and it's where I went to school. But here's the thing, it's where the Division for Planetary Sciences, is meeting this week. And last week, I was in London. I was in Scotland, in the UK, at the Astronautical Federation meeting, the Congress. And everybody in the world gives me the impression, maybe not directly, but gives me the impression, that they want the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the United States Space Agency, to lead. These will be people from the Indian Space Agency, the Chinese Space Agency, and especially the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency. They want the United States' space organization to lead the way. So I would say to everybody, as taxpayers and voters, uh, as we come up with these very difficult economic times and this pivotal election, I want you to think about the direction that we want us to go, we want the world to go in space. But here's the deal, everybody, we've got to explore space and we have to use our resources wisely. So I'm asking everybody at NASA to really evaluate how you're going to spend your money, not just for yourself and for your pursuits, whether it's near-Earth objects like asteroids, distant objects like the plutoids or distant stars and galaxies, but for the good of all humankind here on Earth, because everybody wants the United States to take the lead. It's a hard thing to put your finger on, but you could feel it everywhere you went at these two conferences. And that way we can make the most efficient use of resources around the world to understand our place in the cosmos. So I hope you'll keep your eye on the Planetary Report and the Planetary Society website. Read Emily Lakdawawa's blog, Think over what we need to do in space so that we can go forward efficiently and make new discoveries and change the world. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy.
0: Cassini has done it again. Just a few days ago, the bus-sized spacecraft nearly grazed the surface of Enceladus. The small moon of Saturn that has packed big surprises for scientists. As we finish this week's show, there is very little on the Cassini website about the October 9 flyby other than raw, unprocessed images. We've got the link for you at planetary.org radio. It was only a couple of days before this event that I got Linda Spilker on the phone for another of her Cassini updates. Linda is the longtime deputy project scientist And a principal scientist on the mission, she spoke with me from her office at the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. Linda, welcome back to Planetary Radio. I was just telling you offline, I think that you probably have the record for appearances on this radio show. And uh, I'm delighted to come back for another update on uh, that mission that is still circling Saturn.
2: I'm delighted to be here, Matt.
0: So, as we speak, we're still a day or two out from uh, Cassini's next encounter with uh, Enceladus. I am flabbergasted that you're going to be flying, what, 25 kilometers above the surface, 16 miles?
2: Right. that That's the very closest we've yet flown to any of Saturn's moons. Not only are we coming close, we're going to be diving through uh, the icy plumes that we've discovered on Enceladus.
0: First of all, you discovered the plumes, as you said. You've had one, at least one previous experience, right, in August, where you were able to uh, learn a little bit more about them, including where they come from?
2: Right. We were able to get some very, very high-resolution images of the south polar region. Or these, this area, we call them tiger stripes. It's actually fractures at the south pole, and we know that jets of material come out of these fractures. And so we got a close-up look and could even see boulders on the edges of some of these fractures. And it was a very exciting uh, flyby of Enceladus. We also noticed uh, hints that maybe some of the areas weren't quite as warm as they might have been uh, on previous uh, flybys. So we're still trying to sort through and uh, understand those data. That will tell us something about how these plumes change with time.
0: Some amazing images also from that flyby, which uh, I I don't know how the spacecraft managed to grab those, but my understanding is that this time the goal is is not so much imaging.
2: Right. With this flyby, what we're doing is we're not going to be pointing our cameras at the South Pole for the closest part of the flyby, but rather we'll be lining up our ion and neutral mass spectrometer, and the Cosmic Dust Analyzer and the other Fields and Particles instruments so that they get a really good chance to, in a sense, taste the material coming out of the plumes. With the ion-neutral mass spectrometer, they'll have their best signal-to-noise ever, their highest signal because we're in so close, and they hope to get new composition results about just what exactly, besides water, is coming out of those jets and the plume coming out from Enceladus. And then the Cosmic Dust Analyzer actually has two different goals. One, to look for material that's being sputtered off of Enceladus's surface by micrometeoroids. In a sense, we could sample some of the old surface of Enceladus, as well as to measure the plume particles and to uh, look for their sizes and densities, as well as their compositions. And then there's some hope with CDA, depending on how we fly through this region, that we, they might actually sample individual jets, we know from the images that there are a series of individual jets coming out of these fractures and maybe we'll get lucky and actually cross through one of the individual jets and see the particle counts go way up and then come back down as we go through the other side of the jet
0: in a sense are we going to be getting a chance to look below the uh, the ice uh, that that covers this little moon
2: well in a sense you're you're doing that by looking at the material coming out of the plumes you're getting a chance to sample what's coming out from inside of Enceladus, and, and scientists are fascinated by this, this tiny moon that might even have an ocean of liquid water beneath the surface, and just the, the possibilities for habitability are very exciting as well.
0: These instruments that you're using the, that will be especially useful in this next uh, f- close-up flyby... Did anybody expect that you would be able to use these uh, basically by immersing them in the material that they're that they're going to be analyzing?
2: No, we had no idea because we didn't know Enceladus had an active plume like this. And you know, if we could go back, you know, if we send another mission back to Saturn, then we'll take this and, for instance, it'd be great to have a larger mass range for the ion and neutral mass spectrometer. It only goes up to a hundred daltons. You know, it's like hundred protons. That's not very far and have something that goes out to, say, a 1,000 or 10,000 would be, you know, very interesting, and for Titan as well, to have an instrument that could cover a broader range. And I think we'll be thinking through before we go back to the Saturn system again just what kinds of instruments we want to bring. But we had no idea that we'd actually be – we thought we'd be sampling, you know, like bits of Titan's atmosphere, and that's what we built the ion and neutral mass spectrometer for. But to come in and have a whole – you know, other place for it to do its sampling is is just amazing.
0: Is there uh, much danger to the spacecraft uh, flying through these uh, these particles?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we have uh, detailed models. We think that most of the very large particles, in this case, large for Cassini, would be you know a hundred, a few hundred microns. The very largest particles uh, just come up and tend to fall back onto the surface. And so we think that what will be flying through are those particles that primarily make up the E ring. The E-ring particles, which are fed by the plumes coming from Enceladus, are only a micron or so in size. And these are small particles that are not large enough to harm the spacecraft, even though we're flying by at a very high velocity.
0: You've got uh, yet another flyby uh, in late October, a little bit farther out.
2: Yes, actually, we're, we're calling these two flybys of Enceladus our double header. <laughs> but there's another flyby on October 31st, and in that case, we're going to be being a little bit further away, about 200 kilometers away, and we'll be focusing uh, our optical remote sensing instruments, our cameras, spectrometers, uh, taking thermal measurements as well uh, with this flyby. So you can think of these as complementary flybys, one to dive deep in, taste the plume, and the other to... Uh, from a, just a little bit farther distance, but really not that, that far away to uh, get high-resolution pictures. In fact, some of the highest resolution might be as good as 8 meters per pixel, hmm. you know, really seeing very fine detail at the south pole of Enceladus.
0: Let's uh, turn away from this um, uh, somewhat less mysterious moon than in the past, but still a very fascinating uh, orb, and uh, talk about some of the other recent developments from the mission. Uh, I read a little bit about more work that Cassini's been able to do uh, to learn about the planet's most famous feature, those rings, and uh, some of them discovered near uh, little tiny moons.
2: Right, right. It's beginning to look like every time you have a little tiny moon, Uh, that Moon then sheds bits of itself and actually creates rings or arcs of material that then orbit around with the Moon itself. And so, so that's very exciting. We're trying to understand that process of how that material comes off of the tiny moons. And then we're in a phase of the mission. We call it the Cassini Equinox mission. We call it that because we'll actually be observing a very interesting time next fall as the sun actually moves from the south side of the rings through the ring plane to shine on the north side of the rings and that will give us an interesting opportunity to look for perhaps long shadows cast by some of these wave features that are in the rings that might be vertically extended or look for any warping in the rings. And and also watch how the ring particles uh, heat up and cool off as the sun moves from one side of the rings to the other.
0: We'll have more from Saturn and the Cassini mission's Linda Spilker when Planetary Radio continues.
1: Hey, hey, Bill Nye the Science Guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple, we believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the
3: universe. Here's how to find out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website,
0: Linda Spilker is the deputy project scientist for Cassini-Huygens, which is now well into an extended mission flying among the mysterious moons and magnificent rings of Saturn, helping us gain new understanding of and appreciation for our solar system's second biggest planet and its companions. Are we getting a better understanding of how these rings both achieve and, and sort of maintain their structure?
2: Oh, it's it's a very interesting question. We've learned so much with Cassini. We've gone to thinking of the rings as individual particles that gently do a cosmic dance around Saturn and bump into one another, to something that looks like in the A and B rings primarily, you have clumps of material, something we call self-gravity wakes, and that these clumps can be maybe tens of meters wide to maybe 100 meters wide, and the particles stick together. But we think it's not permanently sticking together, but rather, rather transient. They stick together for a while, broken apart, and then re-stick together, In a, in a very uh, different idea of the rings than we had, say, from the Voyager flybys uh, 25 years ago.
0: Okay, let's go to Titan, where uh, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to do some, maybe not water, but liquid skiing.
2: Oh, yes, it's it's just a Titan has turned out to be a very fascinating place with all of the lakes at the North Pole and even uh, a few lakes that we found at the South Pole as well, and we think that these lakes are composed primarily of uh, hydrocarbons, liquid methane and ethane. And one of the things we're very excited to watch as the sun continues as it goes from winter into spring in the in the North Polar region, uh, do these lakes perhaps start to evaporate and and maybe create clouds and perhaps have storms then at the South Pole. So we're very interested in looking as the seasons change to see if we might be able to actually see some changes in the lakes themselves.
0: Lots and lots of lakes, apparently, but uh, where are the oceans that some people expected?
2: That's an excellent question, the oceans. uh, Initially, we thought as we were going there with Cassini, we'd find a... Titan, a moon covered with oceans of liquid hydrocarbons, and now we're wondering if uh, maybe they're perhaps underneath the surface a bit, or some other processes are going on that have processed what might be liquids. We found dunes on Titan, very reminiscent of the sand dunes we see here on Earth, only those dunes are composed, we think, of complex particles of these hydrocarbons, so maybe some of that material is locked up now, perhaps, in these dune particles.
0: All right. We haven't yet talked about the planet itself, the uh, the body at the uh, the center of this uh, rather amazing and complex system. Uh, what has Cassini uh, unveiled recently about uh, that planet?
2: Well, if you Saturn is uh, very interesting, especially if you look in the near infrared, it gives you a chance to look through the haze, basically. That's around Saturn. And if you look in the near-infrared, Saturn starts to look a lot like Jupiter, very complex storms and bands of atmosphere rotating in different directions. And then there's the Saturn poles, so the North Pole and the South Pole, very different. At the South Pole, we see a hurricane-like storm circling around. And at the North Pole, I see a hexagon. Uh, the hexagon was something that uh, Voyager actually first saw, and it looks like it's lasted all the way up until uh, Cassini has arrived. And right now in the, in the tour that we're in, we're in a really great set of orbits and very high inclinations, about 70 degrees inclination, giving us a great chance to look down both on the north and south poles and get really detailed measurements of those poles. And with the planet as well, we're interested in watching as the seasons change. Does the storm activity change? Does it move from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere? Are there other changes related to Saturn's seasons as well?
0: Linda, what what is the state of Cassini's health?
2: Cassini is in excellent health. Everything is operating nominally. We're ready to go and, and looking forward to more exciting science, both in the Cassini Equinox mission and perhaps uh, if we get funding from NASA, in additional years that will follow on, we think we have enough uh, fuel perhaps for another maybe even seven years of a, a mission after the end of the Equinox mission.
0: Wow. that's uh, So four years already, and now you're into this uh, this uh, two-year extension, the, the Equinox mission? That's correct. I'm using the word a lot because I think it's uh, absolutely applicable to this mission overall. But uh, it is a rather amazing performance by this spacecraft, considering where it is and what it has been doing, the challenges that it has faced, uh, and the fact that you're looking forward to uh, returning lots more science. And I, I take it there are still many, many questions to be answered.
2: Yes, there are many questions about the, the Saturn system, about the planet, the rings, you know, Titan looking for seasonal change, Enceladus, can we understand more about uh, these plumes and uh, the activity that's coming from Enceladus, and does it change with time? So as we go into the future, we'll be uh, focusing in particular on uh, Titan and Enceladus, as well as the, the rest of the Saturn system, and trying to put together uh, the puzzle that Saturn understand the complete uh, global picture of what we have in this amazing system.
0: With all of this happening, uh, you've got a new colleague there, uh, Bob Papalardo, who's uh, been a guest on this show.
2: Yes, that's right. He's uh, the new project scientist uh, for Cassini.
0: Linda, how long have you been working on this again? You've told us in the past, but I forget.
2: Oh, I've actually been working uh, on Cassini before it even had a name or was a project uh, since the late 1980s. So I've been here about 20 years.
0: Still having as much fun as ever?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a wonderful mission to be a part of and to have the opportunity to see the new discoveries that we make with Cassini as we get close to these objects. And I just look forward to um, many more years with Cassini.
0: It is also always wonderful to uh, speak with you, and I hope we can do it again in a few months. Uh, uh, Then again, maybe sooner, depending on uh, what happens, particularly with these two Enceladus flybys, and uh, look forward to having you back.
2: Okay. Thank you very much, Matt.
0: Linda Spilker is the Cassini Deputy Project Scientist and a principal scientist on that mission that continues to explore that uh, beautiful planet and its wonderful system of moons and rings and other stuff out there a billion miles from our uh, little blue Green Planet. We'll be talking with Bruce Betts in just a couple of minutes. That'll be after a visit with Emily Lochtawala for this week's Q&A.
3: Hi, I'm Emily Lochtawala with questions and answers. Last week, I answered a listener's question about the difference between storms in Earth's and Jupiter's atmospheres. But the air is not the best place on Earth to look for analogs to Jupiter. The natural scale of systems in Earth's atmosphere, what experts call the first baroclinic radius of deformation, is about a thousand kilometers, or a tenth the circumference of the planet. The natural scale of systems in Jupiter's atmosphere is also about a thousand kilometers, but Jupiter has more than a hundred times as much real estate as Earth does. So Jupiter's storms have much, much more room to play than storms do on Earth, which is why Jupiter's storms last so much longer. You can find better analogues to Jupiter in Earth's oceans, where the natural scale of systems is closer to 100 kilometers, meaning that Earth's ocean basins are as giant as Jupiter when you compare them to the size of their storms. And if you look at Earth's oceans, you can find perfect analogues for Jupiter's red and white spots. One example is in the Atlantic, where salty Mediterranean seawater slides down and breaks off, forming beautifully shaped, high-pressure whorls called Mediterranean salt lenses, or MEDIS for short. Oceanographers have placed instrumented floats into medes and tracked their stately motions for years. Earth even has an analog for the great circumplanetary jet streams of Jupiter, the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which circles the globe unimpeded by continents, transporting more water than any other current on Earth. So, Earth's oceans help it bridge the divide between terrestrial and giant planets. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more planetary radio.
0: Standing by to bring us up to date on what's up in the universe is uh, Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. We've got (laughs) him... (laughs) <laughs> Bane at the Universe. We have him on the uh, Skype connection. We uh, This is the first time in a while that we haven't done this in person, but uh, still good to talk to you. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Matt. Don't sound sarcastic, because I know you enjoy doing this.
4: Oh, I do. <laughs> I just am naturally a sarcastic-sounding kind of a guy.
0: Yeah, that may be. Well, tell us sarcastically what's going on in the solar system. Venus looks
4: great. Jupiter, ugh, wonderful, fabulous, beautiful. All right, that's enough sarcasm. Now Venus actually does look lovely, as does Jupiter. Uh, Venus over in the west after sunset, getting higher and higher up as the days go along. Brightest star-like object over in the west after sunset. And uh, if you turn your head to the left and look towards the south, you will see Jupiter, also a very bright star-like object up in the early evening and through the early and mid evening. And if you're up for the pre-dawn sky, you can check out Saturn in the east before dawn. And you can also, if you look low enough and have a low enough view, get a look below Saturn at Mercury uh, down towards the horizon for the next uh, couple of weeks. I'll mention the Orionids are coming up, a meteor shower. It's, Not a traditionally very spectacular meteor shower, but we do see an increase in meteor flux peaking around the 21st, so if you want to go out and stare at the sky and hope to see some meteors, you can get at a dark side up to about 20 per hour with the Orionids. On to this week in space history. It was five years ago, seems hard to believe, that uh, Shenzhou 5 launched the first uh, human uh, into space from China. Had to struggle with that. <laughs> the first first Chinese human into space works for me. That
0: does not seem like five years. You're absolutely right. That seemed like maybe two years ago, and of course it was only just uh, what very recently that they've uh, had uh, three fellows, three taikonauts up uh, at the same time. Yes, indeed.
4: On to random space fact. Skype just
0: isn't up to random space fact, but uh, we'll make it work.
4: Few people are. <laughs> Astronaut Peggy Whitson, with 377 days in space and two ISS space expeditions, has more time in space than any other American, but ranks about 20th overall. Oh, is that right?
0: You yes, mean indeed. there are that many uh, Russian cosmonauts who are that far ahead of her? Yeah, pretty much. Wow, that's
4: that's impressive. Well, uh, good on you, Russia. Uh, well, you know they've they've been doing long term space uh, stations for for a while. So uh, we are on to trivia, and we asked you who was the first NASA administrator, starting all the way back in 1958, fifty years ago. Who was the first NASA administrator? How'd we do, Matt?
0: Absolutely, everyone, and we had a lot of entries this week. Everybody got it right. Uh, that first administrator actually got his start before NASA was formally established, which took place on October 1st, 1958. It was Thomas Keith Glennon, who served from August 1958 till January 20, 1961. And it was Bruce Kressler, Bruce Kressler of Helvetia, West Virginia, who uh, got chosen by Random.org and is going to be getting a Planetary Radio T-shirt. Bruce. It's a fine name. What? Well, I told him that the name wasn't going to help him win, but uh, hey, you know, it worked one way or another. Uh, Incidentally, he says he has been a fan for quite some time. Not sure how long, but he's collected the podcast back to September of 2004. So we got a fan out there who's going to uh, have a Planetary Radio T-shirt to wear in his uh, corner of West Virginia. Thanks a lot,
4: Bruce. Bruce Kressler, not Bruce Betts. Oh, fine. I'll thank you later. All right. Well, let's do another trivia contest. See how many bruises we can get to randomly win the prize. Uh, what is the most massive star within 10 light years of us where we sit right here this evening? The most massive star within 10 light years. Go to planetary.org radio. Find out how to enter and compete for the planetary radio T-shirt if your correct entry is randomly chosen.
0: And you've got it until Monday, October 20, to get us uh, the answer to that one. Monday, October 20, at 2 p.m. Pacific time, as usual. But uh, October 20 will not be, as usual, the show that uh, begins airing that day, our Planetary Radio episode, the next one, because we're going to start the celebration of our, you ready for this, Bruce? The sixth anniversary.
4: Yay! We are older than taikonauts. (laughs) That's true, yeah. We've
0: been in space longer than China. But uh, we're going to have some good prizes. I'm not going to tell you what they are yet because it's not entirely tied down. But uh, by next week... (laughs) Well, that's a good
4: reason not to tell people.
0: (laughs) We should know by next week. uh, We should be able to tell you what the various prize packages are. And uh, next week is when we will uh, begin that uh, sixth anniversary show, which means uh, we'll announce the winner of it on November 3rd, the week of November 3rd. uh, However you listen to us, whether it's via podcast or XM or one of the uh, many, many radio stations that uh, we are thrilled to say carries planetary radio. And I think we're done
4: all right everybody go out there look up the night sky think about light switches thank you and good night he's Bruce Betts the
0: director of projects for the Planetary Society he joins us every week here for what's up where the lights are always on planetary radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena California have a great week